be aware, but the English FA Cup, it happened a few weeks ago. I forget. Liverpool won. That's what's most important. But uh, they sing Abide With Me at the final of the FA Cup, uh, which is remarkable in this day and age uh, before the game. And that's because in England, they are so tied to history that they will keep doing things like that when the vast majority of people have no idea what they're singing about. Uh, but they like the hymn. And uh, it was quite something the other day when I was watching the FA Cup, and the next minute they're singing Abide With Me. So uh, for those of you who uh, care, just a little bit of information. It was good to be with our, our brethren at Christ Covenant Church this morning. Uh, preached one sermon in the morning instead of two, so I am full of vigor and strength tonight. Uh, normally when I get to the evening sermon, I'm just holding on for life, but not tonight, friends. Uh, you could be a whopper. And uh, they are they're doing well. Gary went fishing, so uh, I thought it'd be a good chance to see them, see how they're doing, and uh, doing well. We're going to be in John 9. You don't need to, you can have John 9 open just for uh, recourse when we go through the sermon, but uh, we've read it earlier. So let's open with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the words before us, for this moving account, for this startling account of what mankind is like. And we pray that we would not only not fall into the trappings of uh, living in so-called obedience to God apart from Christ, which is no obedience at all, but that we would also be found to be those who can say, I was once blind, but now I see. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. John chapter 9 is one of the great chapters in my mind of John's gospel, because what you have in John chapter 9 are uh, human beings at their very worst and human beings at their very best. And at their very worst, it's rather startling because you have religious people who claim to see but are blind. And those types of people are, if you read the gospel accounts, They are the scariest possible people you can be caught up with. Religious people who claim to see but cannot actually see. I'm not against religious people. The Bible is not against religious people. James speaks about good religion, which is to look after widows and orphans in their distress. But religion that is blind and zealously blind Few things are scarier, and few things receive condemnation like hypocritical religion. And so you have humans at their worst here. You also have some humor here. You have philosophy here. You have syllogisms. You have a debate going on. You have somebody who is able to take on religious leaders who we don't read of went to the highest places of learning as far as we are aware. And it would have been very unlikely for this individual to have gone to the highest places of learning, given the fact that he was blind since birth. Now, there's some contextual factors that are going to help you, I think, to understand John chapter 9 a little bit better in terms of the rest of God's Word. And so the first point you need to understand is that 
In God's word, we are told that God is the one who gives sight to the blind. This is a basic. So, for example, in Psalm 146, verse 8, we are told simply, the Lord gives sight to the blind. It is the prerogative of Yahweh, of Jehovah, the Lord. Or in Exodus chapter 4, when Moses is complaining about the fact that he is not able to speak to these people, the Lord said, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? The Lord gives sight, and the Lord only. But then, remarkably, as the Old Testament unfolds, you find that the peculiar work of the Messiah is to be able to do what only the Lord can do. So in passages that have more in focus God's Messiah, God's servant, you find that the Messiah is going to be known by the fact that he does the works of God. That is, he gives sight to the blind. So in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 18, In that day the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of the gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see, speaking of the Messianic age. Or chapter 35, verse 5, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened. Again, speaking of the Messianic age, when you get to Isaiah chapter 42, the first servant song of four, we read in verse seven, that he will come to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison. You'll remember Luke chapter four, he quotes from Isaiah, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. This is what Christ will do. In Isaiah 42 verse 16, I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. And we could continue through the Old Testament and find that one of the unique marks of the Messiah, unlike all of the other prophets before him, is that he alone has the peculiar dignity of opening the eyes of the blind. It is not a miracle that you find being performed by Elisha, Elijah, Moses, or whoever else. So that's a little bit of the Old Testament context. Now, there's also something else that's important to understand. Not only does God give sight to those who are blind, God actually blinds, as we read in Exodus chapter 4 earlier. So, in John chapter 12, later on, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. And that comes from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, because John says in verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Who did Isaiah see where the train of his robe filled the temple, where Isaiah was told to go out and make people to be blind in his preaching? He saw Christ. And so God blinds the eyes of those on whom his judgment comes. Matthew as well in chapter 13, verse 15, for this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. So basically what you have to understand by way of context, God is alone able to give sight to the blind, but God also in his judgments makes those who claim to see 
blind so that they cannot see. And also, you will find that spiritual blindness is tied then to unrighteousness. So, when Peter is writing in Second Peter, he says, But if anyone does not have them, he is near-sighted, speaking of the gifts and graces of the Spirit, and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Or Romans 2.19, If you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for those who are in dark, there's judgment for you. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, Jesus speaks to the church at Laodicea. And it's quite remarkable because he's speaking now to Christians, but these Christians have drifted so far from their calling, they are neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm. And Jesus says, you say that I am rich, that I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but do you not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked? They were religious people who claimed to see, but did not see because of their unrighteousness. Unrighteousness is a sign of spiritual blindness. So that's the broader context. What is the immediate context of John chapter 9? Well, you will notice that these religious intellects, the Pharisees that are dealing with this blind man, have actually met their match. What would you think in terms of a theological debate between a person who has been blind from birth up against the religious establishment of the day when it comes to theology? It appears to be a mismatch. And indeed, it is a mismatch. That's the point. The mismatch, though, is not in terms of the power base of the Pharisees, but rather in the felt experience of one who actually has received eyes to see. So notice how it begins. Jesus has these compassionate geniuses called his disciples walking with him. There is a man born blind from birth. And so they think, well, here's a good time to ask whether this man sinned to deserve this or his parents that put him in this predicament. Now, you might think, well, that is a crazy question to ask. I think it lacks compassion given the context, but it does reveal something. You can actually have a theological truth that is applied in a way that isn't very compassionate. Let me say that again. You can be right about something even and say it in such a way that the timing or the context or the motive may not be right. And that is a good lesson to us all. Just because you are right doesn't actually mean you are right. So, why do I say that? Because in Ezekiel and in other places, a lot of times suffering and punishment is connected to sin. Or suffering happens because of guilt. This is not something foreign to the Old Testament. And a specific sin can result in suffering in Numbers chapter 12. Just read the story where Moses has to intervene on behalf of Aaron and Miriam. And her, the hand becomes leprous and Moses quickly says, Lord, please heal her. There was a judgment for a sin. But not always. And that's where the difficulty comes in. Job, even the apostle Paul, has a thorn in his flesh. And sometimes God afflicts us 
but it is not because of any judgment, but rather because of his fatherly care of us that has a way of wisdom that we cannot understand at the time. But you see, for a Jewish person in the first century, they understand how tied together parents are with their children, much more than even we would understand today. So when a pregnant woman worshipped in the temple in the first century, her unborn or preborn fetus was actually regarded as a participant in the worship. This is basic for first century Jews. So the question that they ask, I believe, is not in the abstract a question that is necessarily completely out there. There are sometimes punishments for sin. But in the context, walking by, saying, hey, there's a blind guy here. What did he do to deserve this? Or what did his parents do? That seems to lack compassion. And Jesus answers this with compassion. Because he said, it's not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, why was this man from birth, who has lived now for many years without being able to see, why did God allow this to happen? Why did God deny to him so many days and hours and minutes and seconds of his life where he could not see? And the answer is because God is going to glorify himself in this person. Now, it is interesting to think, is it not? Would this man have been better off born with sight and never had this experience? Or better off born blind and been able to have had his eyes opened by the Lord of glory, by the eternal Son of God, who took time to invest in changing his life so dramatically. The point is, when God wants to glorify himself, he will do so in extraordinary ways. Now, Jesus speaks about the fact that he is in verse 5, and here is a clue as to what he's going to do. I am the light of the world. He spoke of that in chapter 1, verse 5, verse 9, in chapter 3, in chapter 8, in chapter 12, and he does it here in chapter 9. And what does he do? Well, the mode of healing is actually quite bizarre because Jesus spits on the ground and he makes a type of clay, a mud as it were, and he anoints the eyes of the blind man with clay and then he sends him to wash in the pool of Siloam, and you will notice what is said there, which means sent. And that uh, is not just a translation, but actually an interpretation of what is actually happening. He has been sent. And I think there's an obvious parallel here with Second Kings 5, with uh, the healing of Elisha of Naaman the Syrian. Was Elisha with Naaman when Naaman went into the Jordan and was cleansed of his leprosy. No. He is sent. And here, this man is sent. And what you will also find is, 
I think the the dust and the saliva is kind of reminiscent of Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where God forms the man from the dust of the ground. And here you have from the dust of the ground and the saliva, which I think is going to clearly point to an anointing like baptism, is what brings life to this man. So you see the anointing there. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud. So the opening of the eyes is through washing. This is a prefiguring of baptism. Because when in Acts chapter 9, Saul receives his sight back, it is in connection with baptism. And so you have a whole lot of things going on here. But what's interesting is that the neighbors who had not seen him before, who had seen him before as a beggar, were saying, is this not Is this not the man who used to sit and beg because he came back seeing? Is this not the man who used to beg because he came back seeing? Now, notice, some actually dispute this. Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. And here's the clue of where spiritual blindness is emerging in this narrative. He kept saying. He isn't just saying for the first time. So when they're having this debate, they don't say, oh, well, hey, listen, we could clear this up right now. Uh, Are you, in fact, the person? And he says, yes, I am the person. And they go, oh, good. This is wonderful. Let's praise God. He kept saying. In other words, he came back and he's clearly saying, I've got my eyesight. I've got my eyesight. And then they'd proceed to have a debate, not believing him. And so there's a division, which is very common in John's Gospel. A division, some believe, some do not. Some see, some do not. And what's even more remarkable, the Pharisees ask him again how he had received his sight. Verse 15, and he said to them, this is what happened. He put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Now, I want you to just understand something about the beauty and simplicity of the gospel. And as a Christian in this world, how you can testify to your faith. It's not actually a whole lot different than this blind man. You don't actually need to be a great philosopher, a great theologian. You don't need to have read books, read books on apologetics, though I'm not against that necessarily. All I'm saying is that you can learn a lot from this person who keeps it simple and sticks to very basic facts. He put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Now, the Pharisees say something that is actually the opposite of what they should have said in light of what Christ has just revealed. So when Jesus performs a miracle, what do they do? Jesus performs a miracle by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Pharisees do the opposite. They say it's by demons that he does this. So the Pharisees don't just miss the truth by a little bit. They reinterpret everything they've seen and put the opposite spin on it. Because that is what somebody who's blind will do. Now they said this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. What are they doing here? They are not going to something they can't really dispute now. 
Now they're shifting the terms of the debate about Sabbath keeping. And it then turns into what I call the battle of the syllogisms. So if you are a philosopher, you'll pick up on this in verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. So this man does not keep the Sabbath, therefore this man is not from God. Okay? This, therefore, invalidates the miracle as well. Now, others say, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was, as I said, a division among them. Now, what's going to happen? Well, they said again to the blind man, verse 17, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he says here again, very simply, he is a prophet. That's all. He is a prophet. When he says he's a prophet, he is saying he is from God. His faith has only got him so far at this point. Now, the Jews don't believe this. And so what do they do? They call the parents of the man who received his sight. Now, i got to be honest, I don't like these parents one bit. Because they say, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Now the parents say, we know that this is our son and he was born blind, but we're not going to get into what just happened here. How he now sees, we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He will speak for himself. When you don't want to get involved in something, you just say, hey, you go talk to this person. They can answer. You deal with it. I'm not testifying to the glory of this miracle. I'm not going to say this man is a prophet like my son just has. I'm not going to say this man is from God. I'm going to pass the buck. And that is also something that I think by way of implication is interesting in terms of our Christian living. We can also do this when testifying about the works of God in our lives and the lives of others. We can pass the buck. You should speak to a pastor about this. You should speak to my friend. He's really smart. We all have a duty to testify to the works of God. His parents show that fear can be so crippling that even their son, whom they should be rejoicing over the fact that he can now see, they are not willing to give glory to God in the person of Jesus Christ. So as the Pharisees investigate this, you realize in the second investigation, it begins at verse 24, for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him. Now again, let me just say, this is a clear-cut, open-and-shut case. There shouldn't be a second investigation. This second investigation is a sign of how truly wicked these people are. So they say, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. When people are against Christianity, when people are against the gospel, they will very often wrap it up in language whereby they're still in favor of God. Give glory to God. Admit this man is a sinner. In other words... Give glory to God and say the very opposite thing about this man that you can possibly say. 
say the very opposite. There is only one who is righteous. One. Give glory to God and say, He alone is righteous. They flip it, just like with the miracles, and say, He is a sinner. Just say that, and it will all be fine. Because then we won't have to listen to Him. We won't have to obey Him. We won't have to recognize anything that He has done. But His answer is beautiful for its simplicity. Whether He is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. Here's his answer. I don't know. What do you think I've been doing my whole life? Have I been reading the Torah and the scrolls and memorizing all of these things? I've been sitting, begging, trying to get by day to day. I don't know anything, but I know this. I used to be blind, now I'm not. And... We have this great confession that every Christian should be able to say, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Why is this such a silly question? Because it's already been answered. He answered them, I have told you already, and would you not listen? Now this is is where I really like this guy. You know, He may not have gone to great universities, but he is sharp and he's witty and he's funny. I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear again? Ah, I see. Maybe you guys want to become his disciples. Is that why you keep asking? Isn't this wonderful news? Can you imagine how infuriated this made them? So they reviled him. You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. And he taunts them just like Elijah did with the prophets of Baal. But his answer is so amazing in verse 30. Why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. You don't know where this man came from. And he's doing a miracle that nobody has ever heard of being performed. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, God listens to him. Now here, this is true. What he means by this is God does not listen to those who are actively, willfully sinning against Him. And the Old Testament and the New Testament have so many passages that establish this. God will even say, I will not hear your prayers because of your unrighteousness. Or if a man doesn't live with wisdom and knowledge and love with his wife, his prayers will be hindered. There's a sense in which active, willful rebellion against God is like shutting the heavens and saying, God is not going to listen. He speaks the truth here. But then, God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, God listens to him. Never since, here you go, the world began, has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. It's never happened. And guess what? The Pharisees should know that. The Pharisees should know the Old Testament. They should know that opening the eyes of the blind is the preeminent mark of the messianic rule of God through Jesus Christ. So to acknowledge this is to lose every argument they've had with Christ up until this point. 
They can dispute the man who was lame and got up. They can dispute the fact that there were how many uh, loaves of of bread and fish in the basket during the feeding of the 5,000. They can do that. But once they acknowledge that this man actually can now see, they are having to actually acknowledge everything about who Christ really is. And they could not do it. They answered him in verse 34, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they excommunicated him. Now Jesus had heard that they cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Because ultimately, his eyes could have been opened and that could matter not one bit for this person. And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? I love the way that he answers that. Not who is he, but who is he that I may believe in him? Who is he that I want to believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. This is just like Jesus speaking to the woman at the well. I am he. I know that when Messiah comes, he will reveal all things. I who speak to you am he. And he says, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord I believe, and he worshipped him. Everything that Jesus did for this man leads to this crucial point because if it did not end here, then this is just another miracle. But the true miracle is that this man has not only been given eyes to see, but that he's been given faith to see Jesus Christ. And then Christ explains everything to him. He says, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who see, like these religious leaders that you have just been dealing with, may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus answers the question. Now, What can we say by way of a few points of application? I just want to say one or two things. The first is this. When you have a grudge against someone, you will interpret everything that they do in the worst possible light. So when they were against Jesus, there was nothing that Jesus could do that they would say, ah, this man is from God. But that wasn't the point, really. Jesus knew that. The point is they are only confirming their guilt for refusing to see. But I think what's more important is this reveals actually the fulfillment of John chapter 3, that you must be born again. In John chapter 3, what does Jesus do? He talks about the need to be born again of water and of spirit to see the kingdom of God. And this healing is actually the revelation of that truth in action. This man is undergoing what Nicodemus was undergoing in John chapter 3. And that's why the man's birth is repeatedly referred to in verse 1, in verse 19 to 20, in verse 32, verse 34. His birth is emphasized. 
But after his healing, isn't it remarkable that people don't actually recognize him? They don't recognize him because he's become a new person. And he's been born again through this anointing and this baptism. And he becomes a model disciple for the later church. And he bears a faithful and bold testimony in the faith, face of opposition. This man is everything a Christian is meant to be. He speaks simply of what God has done for him. He worships Christ. And he is not afraid to talk about what God has done for him. And others can't help but notice he is a different person. And that is something that has to be emphasized so powerfully in the church today. We need to be different people. In this world, we need to be different. We need to be light. We need to be salt. We need to be people that are not recognized by our former way of living, if indeed we came out of darkness from a pattern of many years, perhaps. People need to be able to say, this person is different. This person speaks confidently and boldly and simply about what God has done for them. You don't need to worry. You don't need to worry about being so profound in your display of all the mysteries of how you can prove the existence of God and whether you know Anselm's argument or Aquinas' argument and his fourfold proofs or you can even quote Avicenna and Augustine and all these people. You don't need to do that. You need to be someone that has been changed by the power of the gospel and is thankful about what God has done for you. And here's the difference. Get me ten Christians to stand before an unbelieving world and talk about what God has done for them and how He has changed their life for the better and find me ten atheists who say, yes, my life is much better once I embraced atheism. This man is given powerful, powerful witness because his eyes have been opened. And that also helps you to remember that in this world, you will be dealing with a lot of blind people. You will be dealing with a lot of people who claim to see but cannot see. And it is going to be utterly frustrating. It's going to be perplexing. It's going to drive you crazy at times. You may have family members who see things completely opposite to you. You may have people at work. You may have people very close to you in other ways where their whole worldview is completely opposite to yours, where you think it's just basic that the preborn should be protected, where it's just basic that a man and a woman should be together and not a man and a man, that it's properly basic. That people should not have multiple partners, multiple sexual partners before they get married. And you'll be talking to people who simply can't see this and who think you are utterly crazy. What are you to do in response to this? You are to speak about what Jesus has done for you. That you were once blind and now you see. And now you worship Him. And now your life has been changed by him. And there is nothing in this world that is going to keep you from being bold that you are a Christian and that you have been saved 
and that He has done so much for you that no amount of opposition in this world is going to cause you to be shy or embarrassed about your faith. And I think perhaps now is a good time to be reminded of this, that we will need to be bold, but we will need to keep it simple. What God has done for me, He has opened my eyes so that I can see. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we thank You for Your Word and ask that in our sight we may not be proud, but rather humble. In our sight we may not speak of what we have done, but what God has done for us. In our sight we may worship Christ and not ourselves, and that we would let our testimony speak for itself, that we were once blind, but now we see. And now we see so that we worship, and we worship that we may bring glory to God. We pray this may be true of each and every one of us. For Jesus' sake, amen.